The Diecast Movie Podcast proudly presents James Whale Retrospective Series, where we will be discussing the life, work, and legacy of director James Whale, with guest appearances from filmmakers, film historians, and other podcasters. We would like to give a special thank you to Reber Clark for the intro music. Please enjoy the podcast. Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Diecast Movie Podcast, where we're continuing the James Whale retrospective, the man, the work, the legacy. And again, you can go back to the first episode with James Curtis, where we talk about the man because he did the biography. And we've been now continuing on with his work of movies that he's done. We're doing 10 of them, and we're in the movie number three, Frankenstein. And I'm joined by the gentleman that did the first two, Journey's End and Waterloo Bridge with me. From the Classic Horrors Club podcast, we have Jeff, the man Owens, and Rich, Grandpa Chamberlain. <laughs> wow. <laughs> I'll own it. I'll own it. Hey, Steve. Hello, Steve. Thank you for having us having us back and together. Yeah. Well, I, we, I had to give you guys, being the Classic Horrors Club podcast, one of the horror genre one, you know, I mean, it's, it's, it's only fitting, but listeners can follow your podcast or you guys do, um, a episode a month where it could be a theme episode where it talks about the work from a different actor or director, or it could be, um, a theme with the movies or when you do your drive-in movies during the summer, where you're basically going from the, um, the bill from a drive-in that has three or more movies and you're going with that kind of theme. So any, anything, in, anything coming out? Um, later this year, because this episode will be coming out in November, December. So what can you tell us about November, December's episodes? Yeah, should we let that out of the bag? Yeah. I mean, if no one's going to hear it till then, we usually drop a, a surprise at the end of each episode. But we do have two good themes for the last of the year. Um, I'll take the first one, Rich. Uh, Nashy November. We're going to tackle Paul Nashy. We've never talked about any of his movies. Neither one of us uh, is nearly as knowledgeable as perhaps some people that are participating in this series for you, but we're going to watch the movies and talk about them. Uh, and then in December. Yes. In December, you know, end of the year, taking a look back at the big releases of the year, we are going to be having a Christopher Lee Christmas. We're going to be taking a look at three films from the Euro crypt of Christopher Lee Severin films box set that came out earlier this year and will probably be a contender for one of the top releases of the year. I would think that's, we're going to be talking about the whole set, but really taking a look at three films. So um, I'm sure if somebody hasn't had got that already, it's going to have to be on a lot of people's Christmas list. So we figured that was good timing. And I'm sure we'll be throwing in some of Christopher Lee's Christmas music for good measure in that episode is, <laughs> His wonderful heavy metal Christmas music. One of the songs will have to be. We'll have to do it. Yes, he's one of the few people that that have done heavy metal acting and and a whole. I mean, his career is just amazing. I'm sure you guys will talk about. It. I mean, he was fluent and knowledgeable in several languages. I mean, he's just Christopher Lee was the man. And and a, what, a spy. You know, he can't even talk about. Well, he, he can't now. But when he was alive, he couldn't talk about 
some of the things he saw and did during World War II. So that's a whole nother. And he loved Looney Tunes cartoons. So, I mean, he was a, a well-rounded individual. And I'll leave listeners with this with Christopher. I remember he was being interviewed by this one female reporter who said to him, about, brought up those things. You did all this spy stuff in World War II. What can you tell me? And he leans forward and says to her, can you keep a secret? And she's like, she leans in. Yes, I can. He goes, so can I, as he leans back. <laughs> and what can you say? That's just, it's just, that's just Christopher Lee for, he set it up so beautifully, you know, and then fades away. But we're here to talk about 1931's Frankenstein. You know, the, the movie that pretty much, there's one of two movies that everybody associates James Whale with, this and Bride of Frankenstein. You wouldn't have Bride without the Frankenstein. So it's, so we got to talk about one before the other. This movie to me is, is incredible. It's, it's like we've been talking about with a lot of his movies. The pacing is taunt. I mean, it's been over 10 years since I watched Frankenstein until yesterday before recording this. And I purposely was holding off oh, on wow. watching some of these to get that fresher approach. And um, it was it was really nice to see. I know you guys probably watch it on, a, I don't know, maybe every few months or a yearly basis. I don't have no idea how often you guys are watching these movies, the universal ones. Frankenstein's probably an annual viewing for me. There's probably in the last 10 years, I might've missed maybe one or two Halloweens. I do kind of stir some of the classics up, but it's kind of a go-to for me. Um, and yeah, it'll probably be on, on this year's Halloween viewing list. Um, Frankenstein is not a go-to for Carla cause she always feels sorry for the monster. It, you know, Carla, she's sensitive with that stuff. So she, she always, you know, hates to see people do, do any wrong to the monster. Um, so you know, I don't know if we'll watch it this year or not, but it's, it's one that I have seen countless times and it is one of the two very first universal horror films that I saw. I can't remember which came first, Dracula or Frankenstein. I think Dracula, um, way back in, in the mid 1970s, but these are one of the first two. So, and it, you know, for most of the others, it was in the late eighties or in the nineties before I saw most of the others, once they were coming out on videotape. So I didn't, we didn't have a UHF station in those early years in the seventies. So monster movies were far and few between, but thankfully they, they did Dracula and Frankenstein. And I, if I remember correctly, they did them on one Halloween night. So it was, you know, they did a double feature and I think that's when I first saw it circa 75, 76, maybe around that time frame. I just watched it and I watched the Blu-ray and Rich and I on our last episode before we recorded this talked a little bit about the Universal Monsters coming out on ultra high definition. And I have to admit on the Blu-ray, I noticed something I've never noticed before and that, uh, and it's interesting because the last time I watched Frankenstein, it, I was reminded of how beautiful it was. And I love those sort of outdoor sets that you know are built on a soundstage. Uh, it's at the end when the monster is chasing Frankenstein and there's rocks that are, are built. And there's, I think they call it a cyclorama or something on the backdrop, basically, that looks like the sky and the clouds. And you know that it's fake, but yet it just really works at sort of the universal style. On the Blu-ray, though, you can see wrinkles in that backdrop you can see cracks so there's an argument for keeping what you've got the dvd probably in that case is just fine 
Uh, I mean, it doesn't ruin the movie by any chance. I just thought I'd throw that in there since I noticed that for the first time. I agree. I I think, and I've talked about this with, with Star Trek, classic Trek, as they've upgraded it. I mean, the, the Blu-ray, it's got, the colors are more vibrant than ever. But there's things you see that were never intended to be seen. Some of the blue eye shadow really stands out on some of the actors in those early episodes. And you see the sweat on their forehead, which we never saw that back in the day. Even in the, you know, I think even on the DVD releases, I mean, you you could see it, but it wasn't as vibrant. And the Blu-ray, just it really stands out. And so, yeah, I agree. Sometimes we can almost go too too much and and unless you you know start really kind of tweaking with the contrast and such which they did with white zombie and that was controversial they ended up having to put two different versions on that blu-ray because they made it too soft you know trying to eliminate some of the imperfections and then they ended up putting on the other version which still had some of the imperfections um I think yeah, this was that was just they just were never intended to be seen in high definition. Sometimes it's it's a great upgrade, other times it it can be a hindrance. So I have seen that Blu-ray because I have the uh, the UK coffin release that came out. You know that was a region free, and I was I remember noticing that when I saw that Blu-ray the first time. I was like, you start seeing some of those imperfections, and it can kind of pull you out of the moment a little bit. So you just kind of have to. After I've seen it a few times now, it doesn't pull me out as much as that first time. And so it's, it's, but it's still, yeah, we didn't see that as kids, but I guess, you know, we're also a little older and we've seen these films so much. So you start noticing things, which is the kind of the cool thing. You notice things that you haven't seen. Um, but sometimes, yeah, some of those imperfections kind of come out where we used to overlook them. Well, I don't think you overlooked them. <laughs> I don't think you overlooked it because being on the, like Jeff said with the Blu-ray, you just never were able to notice it because the picture quality was different. And that's why I'm not getting any of the 4K renditions of the Universal movies because to me, I, I, I definitely agree with Jeff, and I've been this way with a lot of other films. If I have a if I have a great print on a DVD, why should I yeah. upgrade to the Blu-ray? Now, I know people will make the argument, oh, it could have these other special features, but I'm always with the – point of view that you're only going to usually watch the special features or listen to the commentary tracks once maybe twice but it's the movie itself is is really what matters and and so if i'm buying something for the first time yes i'll buy something maybe that has the more special features on it and that kind of stuff especially if the prices are comparable but if i already have something it now i'm double dipping and now it's got to be something you know really of an upgrade when you're going from video to DVD, depending if you get, like I said, if you get a great copy of like Gojira, I have a great copy of, of Gojira on, on DVD. I haven't bought the Blu-ray of it, and everybody knows I love Godzilla. So it's, um, but it's not, to me, it wasn't worth the added expense to go for it. And then, of course, I was smart because then Criteria came out with the big Godzilla collection. So I'm looking like, uh, you know, otherwise I would have been like triple buying or something. But I still haven't even broke down and bought that yet because I have so many Godzilla movies on DVD. It's, you know, cost benefit. And there's so many other movies I want to get. So do I keep reading exactly. the same one or do I start getting the different ones? And I think with Frankenstein and the Universal Monsters, I'm happy with the Blu ray sets that I have. And I don't think I need any other edition additional sets to get. Yeah, I agree. Steve, this, came in a, 
beautiful Alex Ross Steelbook cover. I mean, I had to get that. <laughs> well, it is Alex Ross, but you know, it's you know, if you take a picture of it and put it, in, you have a digital copy, and then you got it forever. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but it was so cool that I grabbed it off the shelf and I hadn't opened it in a while and I opened it in the weight of it and that pretty picture. I just, it was well worth it. You know, you, you're talking about the extras. I, I think when these first came out on DVD, they all had those like 30, 35 minute documentaries, right? Those documentaries are, are now more than 20 years old. And I will still rewatch those when I watch the movie because those were so well done and stand the test of time, I think. And that's, you don't always say, you know, that's not always true of a lot of extras. So for me, even if they were to say, we're coming out with a new documentary, you know, that's, that's going to be on this 4K, ultra high definition, 8K, 20K version. I don't know. It's like, is it really better than that? Those documentaries that they put out originally on the first DVD sets? Those were pretty perfect to me. And plus they feature people that are no longer with us, you know, like uh, with a Carla Lemley, you know, so, you know, unless you're going to start taking old interviews and repurposing them for new documentaries, I, I, I don't see the sense in, in doing any more upgrades. I'm happy with what I've got. The, the images are, are about as good as they're going to look. And, and um, you, you start doing anything else to it. And then you really start kind of, Again, you're double dipping, like you said. There's so many other films that I'd love to have one copy of in my collection. Collection. So why should I have, you know, another version of Frankenstein? When I've already got the DVD version and a Blu-ray version, I don't need anything other than that. I'm happy with what I've got. And now for listeners to know, Steve, I thought if you don't mind, since the last episode. I was on, we talked about Waterloo Bridge. Yes. Can I just kind of talk a little bit about how James Whale got into Frankenstein from that? Yeah, just let me say one thing, then we'll go right to you, Jeff, oh. with that. And as I say, listen, right. just so you know, this is the 90th anniversary of Frankenstein. You know, um, came out in 1931, and um, it was a huge hit, very successful. And it, a lot, the reason um, James Whale got this is because of Waterloo Bridge, which Jeff and I talked about in the last episode in a retrospective. And you'll notice a lot of the same people, and we'll let Jeff pick up with his thoughts from there. Yeah, so you said it, basically, Waterloo Bridge was a huge hit. Carl Limley Jr., who was head of Universal, wanted James Whale, but his father, Limley Sr., wasn't so sure. Um, but then Whale had to accept it, and he didn't accept it right away. He had to kind of think and, and decide it, and um, there was the thought that, well, maybe he took it because it was not going to be a you know third war movie in a row. But uh, he later said in an interview, James Whale did, that of the 30 available stories at the time, this was the strongest meat. It gave him a chance to dabble in the macabre. He thought it would be amusing to make something physically impossible believable. Uh, he also thought it had fine pictorial opportunities for camera work and grand characterizations. And also got the sense this was most important. It had a sense that the story could just really go anywhere. And he said, that is the fun of making motion pictures is when you get that feeling. And before we get into other details, if we're going to talk about casting and all of that, this, I don't know if most people, if you think of the Frankenstein franchise, I tend to think of the later movies, you know, I don't know why. Those are the first ones I saw. Maybe that's why Frankenstein meets the Wolfman goes to Frankenstein. 
in a movie like that, they're great, but I think they're somewhat assembly line productions. I mean, you don't really find interviews with directors that had much involvement in the creative process. You know, it was just a, a, a product. But back when Frankenstein was made, James Whale had a lot of input. He had uh, input in some of the script, uh, definitely in the casting. Uh, so I just think that it's important to call that out that, you know, this this was a time when, I mean, Frankenstein was a like a prestige picture. When is the last horror film we've seen that we consider a prestige picture? Yeah, it, it's a lot of people don't realize that horror was not really a genre, so to speak, like it is nowadays. It's, you know, Dracula came out at the beginning of the year. Frankenstein's coming out at the end of the year of 1931. And that's when people started to realize that, audiences really are wanting this because these those two films saved universal um with their with their box office success and i find it interesting because a lot of people say well originally bella lugosi was supposed to play the monster and that kind of stuff from what i've read and i'm sure you guys probably have read some of the same stuff is that was with a different director different writer and it was going to be a totally different movie and Belagosi did not like the way that character was going to be written. It wasn't this particular character. It was the way that character was going to be, which was going to be the Gollum-esque type um, story and totally different in design. And um, when they switched it to James Whale, basically it was like they got rid of everything that was prior to that. And then and James Whale had a different script writer and they went with a totally different story. And that's what they brought in, you know, his people. So it, it wasn't really like Belagosi ever had a chance to be this Frankenstein, if that other project would have went through, if, if James Earl's wanted to take this, it would have been a totally different movie, which could maybe have changed film history, you know, with how this, would there have been a franchise? Would there have, would have been this as successful? Who knows? It's a, it's the what if universe of possibilities, you know, we're never going to know. Yeah. If you think about franchises, didn't even, that didn't even really exist in, in films at this point. Um, I mean, you had, Tarzan films, you know, but after. they weren't, most of them, yeah. do I? Yeah, I think Tarzan was after this, or like it was, it was 1931. No, they had Tarzan silent films. They had Tarzan silent films. Oh, I was thinking of Johnny really, Weissmiller, yeah. Yeah, no, I'm thinking like prior to 1931. I mean, you had Tarzan films, but and, and you had some consistency. I'm a Lincoln was in a couple of films, you know, but there wasn't a lot of connectivity between those. You know, Sherlock Holmes films were always standalone efforts. You know, when he did Dracula and Frankenstein this year, I mean, you know, Frankenstein was the start of a franchise, but it wasn't even considered that until you get to Bride of Frankenstein. And then all of a sudden, the idea of doing sequels again, sequels, you know, were, were rare. By the mid-30s, yeah, then you had the Tarzan franchise. You had the Charlie Chan franchise that started by that point. You starting to see, I think there was at the Philo Vance films, there were several Philo Vance films. Then you started getting franchises. But at the start of the sound era, that wasn't really something that we got much during the, the silent era. You had actors that might have been playing similar roles, but they often weren't playing the same role or the same character. So, so Frankenstein was was really the start of the first, you know, you know, certainly the first horror film franchise, but, you know, one of the very first film franchises altogether. It, it took another four years before, you know, 
got that second film and really kicked off. But Frankenstein was so iconic in so many ways, but it, it, it's responsible for all the films that came after it. And yeah, you think of those 1940s films, like Jeff said, that, you know, the directors, they're not getting, they're not having retrospectives, you know, no one's thinking, you know, I need to do a retrospective on this director, or that director, not to say those films aren't entertaining. They're, 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 they're fun as heck, but Frankenstein and then Bride of Frankenstein are so far removed from the films that came after. Son of Frankenstein was that transition, right? It's like it had a little bit of the of the flair that the first two films had, but it was starting to feel like, yep, yeah, now we're heading into kind of a production, you know, and certainly with the next film after that, Ghost of Frankenstein, it, at that point, yeah, it's just part of a production line. Yeah. Frankenstein has so many good things visually. You can tell that you've got a great director working with a good script and you've got you've got a great cast you know and there's just so many elements come together in this film that you don't always have all of those elements in in later films once you get into the late 30s and 40s now rich you brought up visual and i want to go and ask you guys this question because we all three of us have done the first two films though each of you guys separate i'm the only one who did both of them and he's matched up with the same cinematographer he had for waterloo bridge and Arthur Edson, who, you know, later on did The Impatient Maiden, um, Old Dark House with James Whale, and, of course, Mutiny on the Bounty, and so many other films. And we talk about the visual style and the visionary directing of Whale with this great cinematographer. And I'll start with you, Jeff, because you did Waterloo Bridge, um, and then we'll, go to, then we'll go to you, Rich, talking about from Journey's End perspective. Are we noticing now differences? Because this is his third film, James Whale, second time with the same cinematographer. Are we noticing a better visual styling as compared to those prior films? And we'll start with um, the Waterloo Bridge connection with you, Jeff. Yeah, I remember asking you that question, if we recognized any you know, distinguishable style that you could credit directly to the director. I honestly don't remember what we said. I remember some of those crane shots we talked about at the beginning and then like at the end on the bridge. This, to me, is like a huge step forward. Uh, the thing I noticed, noticed most was the, the way he would enter a scene. The, the scope was huge. If you were inside in a room at the house, you know, the characters were maybe a third or a half at the bottom. The whole top two-thirds or, third of, or half of the screen was the architecture, you know, of the room they're in. That runs throughout the movie, and I had made a note, you know, about this. And then it even happens when they're outside. There's a scene, I believe, when Frankenstein and Elizabeth are sitting outside. Same thing. It starts out, they're small at the bottom. You see this huge, the trees, the sky, and then it comes in to them for their dialogue. Uh, and then I think it even was most effectively used at the end when Frankenstein has been drugged in by the monster to the windmill and the townspeople are using a battering ram to try to get to the open door. That is like the bottom half of the screen. The top half is their shadow. And you see the same action of them holding the battering ram and hitting, but it's in shadows, and it's sort of like this mirror image, but it's just kind of creepy because it's shadows. You see them both at the same time. I, I, that really struck me this time uh, watching this movie. And, Rich, you did Journey's End first, which was like the adaption of the play, and I think I think you're going to probably say roughly you're going to see definite growth here. But what do you, from your perspective, what can you imagine now from that first film to the third film? 
Oh, absolutely. Um, yeah, and some of it was the confines of the play, right? I mean, it's 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 set in in the trenches. It's set, you know, basically you're you're underground for you know what ninety eight percent of the film. I mean, they get out into the trenches above, but most of the most of it is just that one set, and that's that's a necessity of the movie, and that that adds to the feeling of claustrophobia that that intentionally they they you know that sets that was they were limited by based what the play you know by the the setting of the play but it also worked and it added that feeling of claustrophobia which you know you get a feeling a taste of what they would have been going through um in the trenches of world war one here yes it's like you know you're you're walking out and, and it's a whole new day and you're seeing these big ex, you know just these expansive sets that um seemingly just rise you know to the top forever and ever you know night and day from what we saw in in journey's end and and i think you know that that just shows that you know what he could do with with you know a material material that gave him the freedom to say okay you know what now we can we can use lighting or you know you didn't have that much in journey's end and now you can see all these big sets and in this big, you know, production that, you know, Journey's End was never intended to be that way. So as he grows as a as a director, now he's given this film that, okay, let's see what you can do with a wider lens. You know, let's see what you can do with, with a bigger palette to work with. And the results are, are stunning, absolutely stunning. And, and even, I don't know if you'd call them the special effects, but I do remember, Steve, in Waterloo Bridge, we talked about how, you know, obviously the setups and the lines around the, the people there, other than that backdrop I mentioned, the and plus the just the number of special effects with the creation scene. I mean, those are just seamless. They're just almost perfect. You, you can't ask for a better um, prop management or their setting, you know, the scene and everything. And from what I understand, you know, Wales was so meticulous and detail-oriented you know, for films that were done back in the day, the people were only expecting to see once or twice. Maybe if you had a big hit a third time, you know, and then never probably to be seen again. And now you'd have directors that are doing things, knowing that people are going to see it over and over, freeze frame and stop. James Whale was way ahead of this with that detail to everything in the background and trying to get that. And when you talk about the laboratory, I mean, that is something where... We know a lot of people just love to see that set because you can just imagine all of it be, you know, to visit. And and somebody came up, you know, they came up with it, those guys, and it basically set the template up for not just the Frankenstein movies that were to come, the sequels and so on, but for so many other mad scientist type movies that followed. This this was the template for those movies. And well, still being used today, right? I mean, if anyone's doing doing a, a scene that revolves a, a mad scientist laboratory, if it's a homage film, what do they go to? They go to Frankenstein. That's the template. Here we are in the 21st century. We're still talking about it. We're not talking about some of those laboratories from a cheap 1958 flick. We're talking a 1931 movie when they 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 put a lot of thought and effort into to the sets and into all these little details. Nowadays, things are done very much CGI, right? I mean, so it's like, that's the, to me, with these old films is one thing that I love. It's like when you see you see them on this big set, it's like, 
that's a that, that's a real wall behind him. That's that's a real you know ex, you know that's a room you know that that's that's yeah it may be a set but all those three walls around him is just massive and huge. It's not just a green screen you know. And I think that that when you're using when it's real and the use especially in no black and white films the the use of lighting and shadows is something that that far surpasses. I think even filmmaking today, because before we started recording, we were talking about uh, Shang-Chi and the Legend of the Ten Rings. There was one scene in that where the characters are by a river and the village is behind them. It was so obvious that it was green screen. I was actually kind of surprised that it made in the cut. I was looking and I'm like, there's no natural lighting on their faces. And I'm like, this is a green screen. They've added in the, the village behind it. And the very next scene, they're walking beside a building, and you can see natural lighting. And so, okay, that was at least partially filmed outside. And I'm like, that's, to me, that's something that they wouldn't have done in, in these old films because they, they were thinking of lighting and the black and white movies is what surpasses the CGI work that's being done today. There's another Waterloo Bridge connection, pretty obvious, and that's the uh, star, May Clark. and. Um, very different in this movie. I mean, it's a totally different character, but so restrained. And I've never really thought Elizabeth was really much of a character anyway. She just kind of exists to, for the monster to try to get at the end. Uh, so I, you know, her performance was fine. I didn't think it was that great, but that she was one of the actors that James Whale insisted on having. He said he liked her because of her intelligence, her fervor, and her sincere belief that the audience would embrace this story of Frankenstein. Uh, again, Lemley's had someone else in mind. Well, I, I take that back. I, I don't know if they did, but Betty Davis was considered for Elizabeth, and she was also in Waterloo Bridge. But uh, I guess senior Lemley thought that she lacked the sex appeal that was needed for the role of Elizabeth. I wasn't sure if it was senior Lemley or James Whale. One or the other, or maybe both, agreed that. Oh, maybe. I think it was, you know, like Whale was like, she doesn't look sexy enough compared to May Clark and, 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 and that's all, everything's all about taste and that kind of stuff. It, it, it would be interesting to see Betty Davis play Elizabeth, but you know, obviously it didn't, it didn't affect her career any, uh, and that kind of stuff. But May Clark, I thought she did. I thought she did a fine job and, yeah. and it wasn't, yes, she was the damsel a little bit where Frank, the monster's in there, but it wasn't as screamy queen or overplayed or overwrought as it was. And also she was diligent about getting to help Henry Frank is like, we got to go to him. I'm going with you. And, and, and like nowadays you would have like, or not nowadays, but later on you'd have people when if they, if she would have been at the laboratory seeing the monster wrapped up or whatever, she would have been like, Oh, you know, thing, you know, like, Oh, like, Oh, but she was just tough up her lip. Her and um, Victor, you know, her friend were both there shuddering next to each other during the lightning storm. So it wasn't like one sex or the other. They both were like this storm going on, this going on, all this stuff happening around them. And so I thought her character was, was giving, you know, not the typical thing that you would see in later films. So she was held up a little bit. But you're right, she was a plot point in a sense where it wasn't like she was doing a tremendous amount. But there was another character from Waterloo Bridge. Oh, yeah, Frederick Kerr. Frederick Kerr, the Baron Frankenstein, you know. Yep. And, uh, and, of course. It, and that whale insisted on him as well simply because he is an asset to any picture. And I, I, I concur. I, I mean, you can say he, he definitely brings the Baron role. You know, he's 
he, I think he has more of a, I don't want to say, I'm going to say maybe more of a part, but he, it's a different role than it was in Waterloo Bridge. But again, he's, I think we talked about this that last episode where he's usually playing the aristocratic or a military man. So he's in his natural wheelhouse and um, yep. near the, the very end of his life. You think he only lived for another year and a half or two years after this. And, um, but he, he did a great job of showing the emotion, worried about his son, showing the joy of the wedding and all the stuff going on. I mean, it, I think it was, it was a very good job done by him. And it's, it's a, it's, it's a smaller role, but both these characters, May Clark and Frederick Kerr inhabited, played it really well, which takes us to another cast member, which we first saw in Journey's End, Rich, Colin Clive as Henry Frankenstein. Yes. Before we talk about Colin, I, I wanted to make a comment, though, on Frederick Kerr. Now, I didn't know that he had died, like, within a year or two after this film, because I've always wondered, why didn't we see him in Bride of Frankenstein? And so was that the reason, you think, that because the actor had died, they simply decided not to recast the role? Yeah, well, I don't know, because or was why it just, did, uh, they re recast Elizabeth? Well, that's true, yeah. And I, so I, I think you're talking he, about sex appeal. I, I forget the actress's name who plays her in the second film, Bride of Frankenstein, but I felt like there was, she played it with more sex appeal in that, in that film. Um, Valerie Hobson. Yeah. Yeah. I felt, I felt different, very different performances for, for the character of Elizabeth. But anyway, Colin Clyde. Yeah. You know, um, Colin was so good in, in Journey's End uh, playing that, soldier who's just holding on you know by a thread and is, is self-medicating himself through alcohol to get through the horrors of war and you're not liking him you're not liking that character really for a part of the film you're like am i supposed to be cheering this guy on because this guy is you know you know kind of kind of a character that i don't really want to cheer for but then he redeems himself when he kind of lets down that that facade and that final act and, and we got to see that, you know, okay, there is still a human. He's just had to kind of bury that to get through the horrors of war. And I think we get to see kind of both sides of that in this movie. We see the elements of the of, of Dr. Frankenstein, you know, who's who's just forging ahead. He's 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 not focusing on Elizabeth. You know, he's just he's just got that tunnel vision of creating the uh, the the creature. And then, you know, once the, you know, he's kind of, he's reaching a, a state of, of mental fatigue and physical fatigue and also the realization of the horror that he created. And then you see, again, that facade of, of the mad scientist, if you will, kind of begin to crumble away. And, and you're seeing a man who's, who's the human side of him coming out and, and he's terrified of what he's done and almost regretting his actions and definitely that's a theme that's picked up in Bride of Frankenstein that there's that regret and and you know what wishing to just kind of leave that part uh as part of his past and trying to focus on his life with Elizabeth and and you feel like maybe at the end of this movie there's a you know there's some redemption and maybe there's going to be that proverbial happy ending and well, we find out maybe not not quite the case just yet but I, I thought his performance and this movie was was really building on what he had done on on Journey's End, and just kind of taking those certain elements of that character and, and bringing it to life again here in, in Frankenstein. And I, again, it's, I, you know, I watch him very differently now, knowing 
the tragic end of his life. And although we don't deal with with the with alcoholism in this, he's got a, he has an addiction in this film. His addiction is to his his quest of of creating life and and becoming that godlike character. That's his addiction, and and you see him dealing with that and trying to purge himself of that in the final act of the movie. And Jeff, what do you think of Colin well, Clive? Oh, I was just going to add that supposedly Whale's direction to Colin Clive was that he had to remain an intensely sane person at all times who just goes fanatical in a couple scenes and in a couple downright hysterical. But even when he is at his, you know, wit's end, he still wanted him to feel like he was sane and that he was intelligent. So I think I think the direction worked, Rich. That's exactly what you described. And I haven't seen Journey's End, but they said that's very similar to the way he sort of broke down at the end of Journey's End. I thought he, yeah. I thought he was. Yeah, I highly recommend you check out Journey's End if you haven't. It's it's a it's a great film, and you see you see as we've been talking about the the growth of both James Whale and and bringing Colin Clive the the, the strong aspects of his character in Journey's End, bringing it to life in, in Frankenstein. It's a uh, it's a hard film to find, and, and it is in desperate need of a better print. You know, here we have Frankenstein has been released 22 times on DVD and Blu-ray and and 4K, and we can't get one home media release of Journey's End. That's a, that's a perfect example of how many versions of Frankenstein do we need? We've got them. How about one version of Journey's End? That'd be great. It, it'll happen so one day, I'm sure. So Whale had, you know, influence on all of this cast. We're talking about it. Universal supposedly wanted Leslie Howard to play Frankenstein. But one person that Whale did not even have an idea for who to play was the monster. Uh, he had no idea. And then his companion, David Lewis, uh, had been impressed by Karloff in his movie, The Criminal Code. Uh, and so Whale took a look at him, and he said he was fascinated by his face. He had a queer, penetrating personality that was more important than his physique, which they he, he thought the physique was not right, but that's something you could alter and you could build up. But it was the face that sort of captivated James Whale, and uh, they went with Karloff. And that face is with the makeup. I mean, what can you say? It's 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 every Halloween still. It's a mask that children buy. That every child that's never even seen this film knows that face, that image. And it'll probably be that way for long after all three of us are gone, you know, and, and that kind of stuff. But it's just amazing that legacy that um, Karloff and um, Jack Pierce were able to do with their his makeup launch everything, which, again, just shows you how some films, even if they're not seen by the average person, and I still think, I, as much as we all know it's been 90 years, and a lot of people have seen Frankenstein, I still think there's a lot of people that have not seen the 1931 version of Frankenstein. They know it. They know they, they see the character, the image, the picture. They'll know right away exactly who you're talking about if you just say the name. Um, of course, they'll, they'll, you say Frankenstein, they'll think of the monster. But whatever the case, you know, it's just it's just amazing how everybody knows it. But I really feel because modern audiences, the last 20, 30 years of moviegoers, do not usually go back beyond a certain time frame. Like a lot of them are, are very hesitant to go to black and white movies. Um, yeah. and that kind of stuff. So I think there are a lot of people that have not seen the 1931 Frankenstein, and it gets more and more every year as as we have you know preceding generations. I think if they give it a chance, though, I think you will find that if if someone who's younger 
is is open-minded and appreciates cinema, then once they 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 break that black and white wall and break it down, then it's like, wow, you know, because there were things that they did in those films or silent films, for example, you know, silence, another, you know, barricade, you get past that black and white, then you got that silent, you know, getting into watching a silent film. It's, it's a barricade, but then you see what they were able to do with film. And I think you, you kind of see really what film is about, you know, and, and stories that can be told. If you can tell a story and you can create a character without the advent of sound, but with a few title cards and just the acting of the expression, that to me is, is what acting is all about. And, and I think that's what Karloff kind of had going for him. He, he hadn't had that big hit, right? Frankenstein was his, his breakthrough hit, but he had been doing films for years. And you take a look at some of the films that he did before, like um, 1921's The Hope Diamond Mystery, where he plays the, uh, the character of Dakar. He's got a presence in that film. And he, he always kind of leaned towards villainish characters, you know, nine times out of ten. And, and he stands out in that chapter serial just by his sheer presence, just by the look. And, and other films that he did, which, you know, don't get talked about as much, Dynamite Dan from 1924. Um, he plays the villain of the piece called Tony Garcia. You take a look at... Um, uh, the Bells from 1926, where he plays a mesmerist. That's a, a clear foreshadowing of what he could do and was going to do in the 1930s. You know, this, you mentioned the criminal code. Some of those early sound films that he did was where he was in, now being able to take that, the visual that we had seen in the 20s, and then bringing forth his very unique way of, of, of you know, pronouncing words and talking and, and the tone of his voice, add that to the, to the face and you get something that's incredibly iconic that, you know, is still talked about today and is still parodied and not parodied, but, you know, uh, people will do a homage to, to Carl. I know parody too. I mean, that's the thing. If you, here you are a century later and somebody can do a Karloff and maybe, you know, 50% of the room will know who Karloff is, even if it's done jokingly. That says a lot about this actor, you know, who did this film, you know, 90 years ago um, and opened the door for so many other films that he would do. But in this film, he doesn't have the, he doesn't speak, right? It's, so he's, he's bringing forth that silent acting experience of how can I bring this character to life? Yes, you got the grunts and groans, but how can I do it with just the visual and lighting will come into play in this. And this is where James Whale is using his directing and, and the, the big reveal when the monster turns around. That's an iconic piece of cinema right there that will often get played if someone's doing some type of, here's 100 years of cinema, 200 years of cinema, you know that scene's going to be seen. Absolutely. Yeah. I have a theory to float by you guys. So the last time I watched Frankenstein, I was going to write about it for my blog. And I'm like, what can I say about Frankenstein? You know, and you always see something new when you watch a movie. But some this idea latched onto my head. You think that the monster's sympathetic. That, that's one thing Whale liked about it was that he's sympathetic, that, you know, supposedly has more impact if the, the audience can empathize or sympathize. But what what if he wasn't? What if he was truly a monster? And I think if you 
watch the movie from that perspective. I, I've got evidence to prove. I mean, first of all, it, it's the dysfunctional brain. You know, there's the the normal brain and the, the criminal brain, and he gets the criminal brain. So we know, in essence, he's a bad person. Fritz taunting him with fire. We think that it's there's no point to that. Well, what if there is a point? What if there's a, a scene we missed where the monster was taunting him or threatened him, and he's sort of fighting back? Uh, then the monster kills Dr. Baldwin. You know, why not? There's really no need for that. Uh, and then the little Maria scene. Of course, that was accidental, right? Well, again, what if it wasn't? What if this is a killer, a dangerous killer, and he, you know, threw her in? There's a, the very end of that scene, he's down on his knees and he's pounding. You can't really see what he's doing. What if he's holding her under or pushing her under? I mean, I don't know. You can really view this like the monster is a bad creature. And I like that uh, perspective to think about it that way. And then finally, when he does break into Elizabeth's room and he, it's a really cool shot. She doesn't know he's there for a while. And then she turns and she sees him. She backs up against the door. He growls at her. And it is not a, I'm a, you know, mean monster growl, or, you know, it's like a lascivious growl. I mean, listen yeah. to that. So I think you could interpret the monster as being a criminal and a bad creature all the way through. I agree with you, Jeff. Um, I was yeah. watching it that because everybody always said sympathetic, and it's been 10 years, and so I was coming in with that fresh perspective. He's, he's sympathetic up to the point where he kills Dr. Waldman, Wal Walderman. And um, once he kills him, I think he loses the sympathy. Now, people say, oh, he thought the girl was going to float because the flowers floated. Well, that, now we're trying to read intentions into something we have no idea what the monster is thinking, you know, because we don't know. And it could be interpreted that way. It could be interpreted your way. Obviously, what he tried to do to Elizabeth can only be interpreted one way. There's nothing innocent about that. And um, in, in, in those kind of things. So, yes, I mean, you could you could look at it as going, he was going down that dark path. Now, is he a, a product of his upbringing, his environment, or was he a product of genetics, product of both? The movie leaves that up to interpretation, you know, and, and that kind of thing for down the road. Yeah, you could you could look at it both ways. But I, my, I definitely agree with you. I think he's definitely more monstrous as the story progresses and um, and loses that, that that innocent quality for me, where I used to defend him and think he was more innocent. But this time after watching it, I'm, I'm more in the camp of, I think he's more malevolent, I remembered him being. Well, I think it's like if you keep this movie, I agree with you guys on this. This If you keep this movie separate, you know, from what comes after, because he is played much more sympathetic in Brighter Frankenstein. Right, because now he's learning to talk. He befriends the old man and, and the woods, and he's and you see that like you know he's 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 he is wanting to kind of befriend somebody, and he's just he's lonely and he he needs a friend, and and then of course there's always somebody chasing him, and it's like he's trying to be good, but he's always getting pushed down that path, and so that's the the image of the monster that we tend to remember because we're like okay. There's this movie and this movie and this movie and this movie, and there's this this progression of making it more sympathetic. If you just have this movie, yeah, we, we you tend because they never talk about his criminal brain in any of the other films. You know, it's like I don't believe that they certainly if they do, it's it's maybe touched on very briefly 
in bride if they do that i can't remember this one we know that he's got a criminal brain and and yeah it's like what did he do what was what did he do in that previous like like jeff said maybe he did intend to, to drown little maria you know what if you know and again why did he kill dr waldman you know why did he do that so there there is you can certainly look at this movie and, and say this yeah he's it's, he didn't ask to be created, but now he's been created, and now it's like he is, you know, they're keeping him. Because really, there's that jump, right? It's like once he gets created, the next thing we do, we see that he's in chains because, you know, you didn't see the – assume that there was chaos that happened, and that's why they chained him up because he was out of control. Um, and that's when he starts getting taunted with the fire. So there's that that question of, like, you're, you're shaking your head, Steve. I'm talking to – so what am I, what am I missing here? When I, when I watched it, he walked into where um, Henry Frankenstein and Dr. Walderman were talking. He walked in, he said, oh, here comes, here he comes. And he sat down, he was not chained or anything. He sat down, he, he opened up the light. He saw the sun, reached for the sun. And then Fritz came in with the torch. And it was after that where they chained him and put him in the basement. Um, they carried him down and chained him. So he was walking around. And right. it was implied for maybe a couple of days because it's like some some period of time had gone by, and he was not but changed. But Fritz and that, him yeah. were doing something prior to that too because th- there's footage that's lost because it, when it was re-edited for the code, that would you know they were able to find the scene where the girl got tossed into the water, but they were not able to find some scene. So there could there is some lost footage out there that might have filled in some of these blanks that we're looking for. And, and that's what I'm saying. There seems like there's a there's a gap there, though. It's like as to where, yeah, you're right. I mean, he comes out, he's he's walking freely, but you know, then it's like you know, at some point, though, there's that, you know, what caused him to what caused him to want to have him chained up, you know, and then and then why why was Fritz, you know, you know, taunting him the way that that he was? As Jeff said, was there something that he did to Fritz? You know, something, and that's that. That's why I think there's that little bit of a gap, and it could be that that missing footage, because as we know, we certain things have been recovered. You know, the the Maria scene, and also the the dialogue restoring to where now it. You know, I know what it feels like to almost be a god, or to be like a god. That iconic line that was missing up until I think what 2000 ish around that time. I think when that. When that came out on DVD, I think that was the first time that dialogue was actually restored into the film. Because I remember when I watched it, and I'm like, well, wait a minute. Wow, they've, they've restored that. The Maria scene had been restored going back to the the VHS release in the late 1980s, but it was still missing that, that dialogue. And, it, you know, any other footage that's missing, it's unlikely that, it's, that we're going to, you know, it's going to be found now. It would have been found at this point. I just feel like there's, there's, there was a, there was, we're, we are missing something that could add to, to why the monster, you know, again, to Jeff's point, should be viewed more as a monster and less sympathetic. He gets played sympathetic in later films, but we have to ignore those later films because that's not part of the story yet. We're at his creation. And yeah, he's, he's got the, he's got the criminal brain. We don't know what kind of criminal. So, but it's implied that, certainly a killer you know whether it's intentional or not he's having some echoes of that past that past life that that come forward there may be a conflict going on but 
you know, we really don't see that until the next film. Now, there's a question I'm going to ask both of you guys because I know I know we're, our time is running short. The thing I wanted to put out there that that it, it came to me a couple of months ago, and everybody always says, you know, when they refer to Frankenstein, you know, and, and, it, and they call him Frankenstein instead of the Frankenstein's monster. I just want to throw this out there as a, as a, uh, I've never heard anybody talk about this. I haven't read anything about this before, so it might be a different take. At least it is for me, because I mean, somebody else probably I'm sure thought of it. Technically, Henry Frankenstein created the monster. So when you create a life and you are the male, it usually takes your last name. So in a sense, the monster's last name would be Frankenstein. What do you guys think? You know, in that sense, it could be. Jeff will start missing his first name. You know, so what is it, like Chip or Beth or something? Well, wouldn't that make the the 39 version, Son of Frankenstein, could actually be the uncle of Frankenstein. (laughs) Basil Rathbone's actually his uncle. So, yeah, it's... uh, Yeah, but avoid avoid the other films. I'm just talking about this film in particular. Yeah, no. You can make an argument, you know, for all those people that called Frankenstein instead of Frankenstein's monster, they actually could be right because technically it is a creation of Frankenstein. And if you go by the, the creation of life theory that we've, that we've all done, it usually follows the male last name that it would be monster Frankenstein instead of Frankenstein's monster. Supposedly there were, more than I realized, I knew this was based on a play. I didn't know there were so many different play versions. And this movie kind of takes bits and pieces from all of them. And in a couple of those plays, they did call the the monster Frankenstein. So I think, I know we have a lot of fun with that, but um, it's certainly reasonable. I don't disagree with you, Steve. Yeah, I don't either. Yeah. I've never been that held up on it. I mean, it's it's Frankenstein's monster, monster, you know, Frankenstein. Feature. Yeah, creature. I, it, it's you know, rose by any other name. It's it's. I, I'm fine with whatever you want to call it. So, well, I was just I was just curious to get other people's opinion because you know you always hear those people that are really you know yeah. particular about it. Um, one other thing I want to mention with this film, it 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 shows the continuation of how it moves. This film just moves along, and if I was to give a universal film from the classic time if i had to pick between dracula and frankenstein for a 20 year old to watch for their first time hands down i'm picking frankenstein because if they watch dracula i'm gonna have a heck of a time getting them to watch frankenstein because the pacing and everything is so different um this movie has more of that modern pacing get to the action keep things moving and i think that's gonna hook in a younger viewer you know, somebody that's never seen these classic movies more than the other ones. The Invisible Man is also another one similar, another James Whale movie. And I think it's that relentless editing and getting that fine-tuned product and the production values that he brings. I think that would bring in a modern person a lot better. And I think this film definitely should be seen. I was going to say earlier when you are talking about black and white films and younger people watching, this would be a good gateway film into black and white. If, if this was the first one somebody saw, they're going to say, hey, this isn't slow and boring. This is pretty good. What other ones are there? Yeah, I think that, that you know, you're looking at, you know, horror films, you're looking at comedies. There's always a, you got to put some thought into like how that modern audience is going to, to enjoy, you know, and, and I, having spent the whole summer with, watching Harold Lloyd films, 
I always think Harold Lloyd is is a much better comedian to to introduce people to than Charlie Chaplin or Buster Keaton because Harold Lloyd is like the boy next door. He's like you can watch that movie and it's like, well, this is a story. His stories are always easily you know transported into the 21st century, whereas Buster Keaton and Chaplin were playing characters, you know. And you got to think about pacing and, and things, you know, and, and, and a lot of um, Harold Lloyd's films, not all, but a lot were, you know, short for feature film length. And the ones that were longer, yeah, you got padding. And I think that's Dracula has that padding to it a little bit that having actually I just watched the last part of that last night on Spenguli. They had the version, of course, as they always play in Spenguli is the one with the more contemporary soundtrack. And I didn't really pick it up at first until the, the big climax. And I, I'm a stickler for, I know I want the original music. You know, I can appreciate the, the more contemporary music. But for me, it's like, yeah, I want the original, you know, which has what, very little music really to it. Frankenstein as well. I mean, these early 1930s films didn't have a lot of soundtrack to them uh, musically. And I think that actually works for me. It's like, I, I think that, you don't necessarily need that music. Um, music can enhance the scene and can and certainly comes into play in later years. Early 30s, you didn't have that much, but with a brisk 75-minute, you know, running running time of this film, yeah, it just you, those little things you don't pick up. And I think a younger person would absolutely dive into this film and, and wouldn't be bored at any point from beginning to end. There's there's really no part of the film that drags. And in fact, like as we said, there's some scenes that you can almost benefit from like another five minutes or so of film footage to fill in some of these gaps a little bit. And it would still be, it would still have played incredibly well. Now, before we end the episode, Jeff, do you have anything else you want to add to talk about with Frankenstein? Not really. Uh, I got my points in that I wanted to make. I love this movie. I Oh, I did kind of want to ask you guys. What is your favorite Frankenstein movie? A lot of people say Bride, and I know you're going to talk about that, but uh, I I think this is my favorite of the Frankenstein movies. I'd go with this one as well. I love Bride, you know, and I think they go together incredibly well, but there's always something about this movie. There's just a little bit of, of a raw edge to this film that, that Bride is a little more polished, which is great. But I like the 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 raw edginess to this one, and I, I love I love Karloff. Karloff talking, you know, can be can be amusing. But I love his portrayal in this one. It's just fresh. He's newly born. There's an edge to him, and and I think that uh, you know you've got the presence of of other characters like Edward Van Sloan as as Dr. Waldman or Dwight Fry as Fritz, that are just. They add to the overall story. So this one, to me, edges out Bride slightly, but it still edges it out. Just don't tell Sam. Well, I look at it with with, with Frankenstein. I think it's the better horror genre, and Bride is the better camp film because they're two different types of films. It's like trying to compare Alien with Aliens. Um, It's 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 they're they're similar very different and i think to try to say one's better than the other it just really depends what mood you're in for that night if you're in more for a little more campiness or whatever bride is definitely the one if you're in for more of a traditional horror frankenstein is your one so i think because of that it's hard for me to say one's better than the other and i try to avoid that because they really stand on both on their own as to which one and i think it's just because they're they're really 
they're in the same genre, so to speak, but they're like different parts of that genre, different subsects. And I want to point of clarification. I did not ask which one was the best. I asked which was your favorite. Yeah, well, that's what I'm going by. It's just I, I, when I when I ask to pick favorites or best, it's just I like both. And but yeah. to me, they're two different ones. And it's it's for me, it's hard. It's like me trying to pick Alien and Aliens. It's like I enjoy them both, and it's just for that same reason. Yeah. But yeah, it's good clarification. But I want to thank both you guys for joining me today to talk about Frankenstein and with earlier Journey's End and Waterloo Bridge, which for listeners that have not followed the retrospective, if you're coming in in this episode, the James Curtis interview, um, talking about James Whale's life is out there. Um, our first episode of the retrospective came out on Halloween. And then, of course, we had the following episodes of Journey's End and Waterloo Bridge. And now we're at Frankenstein as we end, as we close, get near the end of this calendar year, 2021. Uh, we might have one more episode of the retrospective in this year, and the rest are going to be in 2022. So you get to follow along as we go through 10 different movies of Whale. And then, of course, we're going to end up a roundtable with some of the people that have been guest hosting on this. But thank you guys for joining me. Thanks well, for thank having you. Me. Yeah, yeah being part of it. And you almost did that in sync. That was pretty cool. <laughs> <laughs> we did. Um, otherwise, we've reached the end of our journey on Frankenstein. And um, listeners, please join us next episode when we either do a movie review decided by the roll of a die, an interview, or the next episode of the James Whale Retrospective. And as always, stay safe and do something fun today. Enjoy yourselves. Bye. Welcome to this month's meeting of the Classic Horrors Club. I'm Rich Chamberlain from MonsterMovieKid.wordpress.com and KCCinephile.com. And I'm Jeff Owens from ClassicHorrors.club. Let's begin with a report from our sergeant-at-arms. Vince, are there any housekeeping details today? Once the door is locked, there's no way out. The windows have bars that the jail would be proud of. And the only door to the outside locks like a vault. There's no electricity, no phone, no one within miles. So, no way to call for help. Uh, Thank you for that very thorough report. As you all know, oh yes, we have a comment. It's time we started. We had better get on with it. Well, we're trying. As you all know, we're recording a new bumper for the podcast. So what testimonials can you give potential listeners? Yes, Al? I hope that as you listen to this, you are among your loved ones. Hmm, interesting feedback, I guess. Vince, what do you think he means by that? many unexplainable things have happened here. You're not really selling it, guys. Chris, how do you think fans of classic horror, from Silent Screen to Halloween and everything scary in between, will feel after listening to the Classic Horrors Club podcast? In the first moments, every muscle, every fiber will be afire with torment and agony. In the days to come, you will pray. Come on, doesn't anyone have something good to say about the Classic Horrors Club podcast? Yes, Bela. Well, this isn't a very pleasant way to entertain a guest. (laughs) At least someone's having fun. Let's adjourn on a high note. Al, would you like to sign us out? This concludes our danse macabre. Eloquent as usual, thank you. Please join us for the next monthly episode of the Classic Horrors Club podcast, available where all fine podcasts are found.